2: and definitely check out those shows as well. Marie Benedict is the author of The Mitford Affair, a novel. Maria is a lawyer with more than 10 years' experience as a litigator at two of the country's premier law firms. She found her calling unearthing the hidden historical stories of women. Her mission is to excavate from the past the most important, complex, and fascinating women of history and bring them into the light of present day where we can finally perceive the breadth of their contributions as well as the insights they bring to modern-day issues. She embarked on a new thematically connected series of historical novels with The Other Einstein, which tells the tale of Albert Einstein's first wife, a physicist herself, who knew, and the role she may have played in his big theories. The next novel is the USA Today bestselling Carnegie's Maid, and the book that followed was New York Times bestseller and Barnes & Noble book club pick The Only Woman in the Room, the story of the brilliant inventor Hedy Lamarr. Then she released Lady Clementine, The Story of the Incredible Clementine Churchill, which was an international bestseller. Her next novel was an instant New York Times and USA Today bestselling book called The Mystery of Mrs. Christie. Then she co-wrote a book with the talented Victoria Christopher Murray, which became an instant New York Times bestseller and a Good Morning America book club pick, The Personal Librarian then there was her hidden genius how does she even keep track of all these women oh my gosh then came her hidden genius about the brilliant british scientist rosalind franklin who discovered the structure of dna but whose research was used without her permission by crick and watson to win the nobel prize and now she's released the midford affair which explores the role that history's most notorious sisters the beautiful brilliant eccentric midfords played in the rise of world war ii both for and against the nazis Writing as Heather Tyrrell, Marie also published the historical no- novels The Chrysalis, The Map Thief, and Bridget of Kildare. Marie's novels have been translated into 29 languages. Welcome, Marie. Thank you so much for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books to discuss the Mitford Affair.
1: Oh my gosh, thank you so much for having me. As you know, I am a fangirl, so to be here and chat with you about my latest is like such an enormous treat. Well, you were being so
2: complimentary, which is lovely. But what I was saying before is that what you do is so impressive, especially with this book, because you have so many different points of view on the same events. A lot of the time, like different picking up different threads of the same thing with different perspectives, as if you're like jumping into different people's bodies around the same table or something and weaving in so much history and fact and context and it's it, I'm like how is she doing this so it's it's
1: really impressive you so much. I mean, I will say I didn't know what I was biting off when I decided to write this one because I usually do stick with the perspective of one historical woman, see her through the, the the important arc of her life and kind of explore her contributions and her struggles. But one of the things that fascinated me about Nancy Mitford and the Mitfords in general was the interplay of those sibling relationships. You know, I, this Mitford Sisters, for people who don't know, were like the original aristocratic girls in like the 1920s and 30s, each more eccentric, beautiful, brilliant, cuckoo than the next, right? And I felt like exploring the, the way in which they shaped each other's personalities and destinies was so fascinating, especially because I'm one of six myself. And I have seen play out in my own family how we become who we are because of, in spite of, um, sometimes be of our siblings. And it was an interesting theme for me to explore. Fortunately, we don't have relationships like these Mitford sisters. <laughs> um, we're much closer and not a lot of strife. but we are definitely, you know, kind of experiencing some of the same things these sisters are.
2: Wow. Well, I have to say, normally when I read books that I've, when I read books that I book for the podcast, I don't go back and read the back cover or anything when I start. I just like know it's coming up and so, and so, like everything surprises me. <laughs> do
1: you know I, mean? I do know because those those back covers are sometimes have a lot of spoilers in them. Yeah,
2: yeah. So when I was reading your book, and I was like, wait a minute, seriously? They're like now we're interacting with Hitler, and she they're on the stage, and the, it, like this is intersecting with everything. And I'm like, wait, but I was like feeling really sympathetic towards these characters. <laughs> do you know? What I mean? But I was like, but wait, now they're
1: bad. Now they're bad guys. Like, what's going on here? So. Yeah, I mean, and what you're describing is something I struggled with so much in the book. You know, without giving away too many spoilers, one of the things that was fascinating about these sisters is that there's a whole story about them, which most people don't know. People mostly think about them and their lives through the lens of Nancy Mitford, who wrote about them famously in Love in a Cold Climate in the Pursuit of Love. And, and people think of them as kind of this like idyllic, quirky, English, aristocratic group of sisters. But the reality is, is there was a dark undercurrent to their existence and it very much reflected the dark undercurrent that was going on in Europe at that time in this interwar period. It. And I, I was, you know, fascinating in capturing how these otherwise, you know, sympathetic, like you said, engaging women suddenly transformed, mm-hmm. and my eyes, and how that happened is something that really fascinated me. And and getting into the things that sway people in their beliefs, and then how that plays out on a family level mm-hmm. was really interesting to me. And so. Sometimes I really struggled with the scenes because, as you know, two of the sisters become enamored of fascism. I mean, more than just enamored. They become facilitators. And in Unity, one of the sisters in particular is like part of Hitler's inner circle. And it was like appalling to write him through her eyes and yet to understand how she came to do what she did and believe what she believed. Mm -hmm. I had to do that. So, yeah, it it was a struggle, I'll be honest. Yeah, that was
2: tough. I like how you even have the parents sort are weighing in like in such a casual way. We were like, every so often, dad would ask Unity to take down the swastikas. In the room. <laughs> do you know what I mean? It's like, just like as, a, as an aside, as if it was like a poster of like Ralph Macchio or something, do you know what I mean? Please take that down. We don't like your Pokemon posters,
1: you know? But you know what, that's a tremendous analogy because she was she was like a teenage fangirl. Mm-hmm. Oh, yes, and, you know, we know what we know now, of course, about the fascists and what ultimately happened. They, of course, did not have the benefit of hindsight there. But at the same time, shouldn't the alarm bells have been ringing for the parents, right? Yes. yes. Shouldn't they, and, and that is becomes a theme in the book. At what point do you intercede? At what point do you pull your teenage daughter out from the clutches of Hitler in Munich and and say that that's. Even if you don't know what his ultimate scheme is, that's not appropriate. That's not right. And, and so that theme of at what point we sort of act on our beliefs, act on our suspicions, is a huge sort of core issue in the book that, that raises its head ultimately through Nancy and her kind of decision making, but uh, is a, is a big factor earlier on with the parents. Like, you can't believe it. And yet, what was also fascinating to me, and I just kind of touch on it in the book without delving too much, is that this time period, there were so many upper-class English people who sided with Nazism. You know, they saw communism on the horizon, and they were more fearful of what communism might do to their estates and their titles and they thought they might have stand a better chance of keeping all of that with Hitler. And so there was a certain amount of sympathy towards him in this upper class, which is something I was not aware of. Me neither. In the book.
2: Yeah. Just when you think you can't learn anymore.
1: <laughs> <laughs> you, you open Marie oh, Benedict's latest book. <laughs> well, and that was what attracted me to this. You know, there's been a lot written about the Midfords and I usually write about unknown women with the exception probably of like Agatha Christie. But again, when I choose one of these better known women, I'm looking at something about them that is secretive and hidden, but that is important and helps us kind of switch out that lens through which we look at the past.
2: Well, I have to say the way you wrote Diana, the sister Diana, the older sister, well, she's not the oldest. Is she the oldest? No.
1: Nancy's the oldest. Nancy's the oldest and she's
2: the second oldest, right? Yeah. She's so glamorous and yet... Then she, I mean, I I think I can say this because on the back cover, but I was, (laughs) I was surprised since I didn't read the back cover, how, you know, she, she's married to like a Guinness heir, and sees this cute guy who she like is totally like in lust with across the room in in your opening scene. And then fast forward, she leaves her husband to be with this guy, but not even to marry him, which in today's world would be one thing, but like I had to imagine back then this is like, wait, you're doing what? Like, this is insane.
1: Here she is, she's considered the most beautiful woman of her generation. She has her pick of men, she picks a golden boy. She yeah. picks, you know, Brian Guinness, who's stunning, kind, adores her beyond measure, has the riches of dreams, right? And yet he's not enough for her. Mm-hmm. He, there's something missing. And, and I hate to say it, but it's like, it's almost like he's too nice, yes. too too doting upon her. And um, when she leaves him for Oswald Mosley, who's married, right? And it's all over the headlines. Diana has this strange self, not just self-awareness, but like confidence and unusual confidence that she lets all of that roll off her as she proceeds down this most unacceptable path. I mean, this story was everywhere. I mean, the, the Midfords were the regular stuff of headlines, let's be so fair. I mean, who, who are the
2: Midfords today? Are, are we thinking like Giselle and Tom Brady type of thing? Are we thinking Kardashians or is it more like actual like royals? You know what well,
1: I mean? Yeah, I mean, it's tough because we don't really have those kind of stratification of society anymore so that, you know, they're the stuff of headlines, but yet they're still on a pedestal. Mm-hmm. They're definitely Kardashian-esque in the amount of newspaper coverage there is about them. But they're, you know, the Kardashians aren't on our nobody's pedestal. So, right. you know, right. that, that's not an exact analogy. I mean, they were on in the headlines so frequently that their mother was famously quoted as saying, anytime I see the phrase peers daughter in a headline. I know it's going to be about one of you six. I mean, that's that each one of them. I mean, these three are just three of the six. The others three had their own host of headlines before, during and after this time period. So a direct analogy, I I don't know if there is one, but the level of fame and the amount of press coverage, Kardashian-like. Maybe it's like if Princess Kate
2: had a couple siblings.
1: Yes, that That would be a good one. That would be good because there's more access and coverage. Yeah. But definitely more scandal. If she had a whole bunch of siblings and each one was like up to no good, that that would be about it. Yeah. Yeah. Which would be amazing. I would love that. <laughs> right? I would love... That would be like my future stories. So yeah. You know, imperial galore, but they're too buttoned yeah, up. They, yeah. They're yeah, too yeah. aware yeah. of the media coverage. The thing about the Midford sisters is that they think nothing they thought Nothing would stick to them. Mm-hmm. It would all fall off. And that's why they behaved with such complete, just, I don't want to say impertinence, but lack of care what yeah. other people thought. But it does catch up with them in the end. And it, and it catches up right in, in my book and it catches up at the hands of someone close to them. Dun, dun,
2: me a You know, I actually I I thought it was really interesting also how you how you developed unity as a character and how we see her as so awkward and even her like random gray teeth (laughs) you keep talking about like you know, like how she doesn't fit into anything and she's just always tripping over herself and and you see how she finds herself in this cause. And I feel like that is so that is something that repeats itself through history all the time. Even today, out, sort of outcasts, quote unquote, who like are searching so hard to find their place of belonging. And there's a movement that is very inclusive of anyone who believes. And so you're willing to believe anything to feel like you're a part of something.
1: That That is unity in a nutshell, gray teeth and all. I mean, this is a girl who brings her pet rat, rat to yes. both. You know, I mean, she she's so insecure and sort of, she doesn't, like you said, she doesn't even fit in with her sisters. I mean, her sisters are these celebrated beauties, and she is an attractive girl. If you look at pictures, but she never has the self-confidence that her siblings do. And you know, they're they're merciless to each other, those siblings. they're they're like a feral pack of dogs out in the countryside on an estate. They, the parents don't send them to school. They have occasional tutors. They're basically left to raise themselves and they could be very cruel to one another. I mean, they had occasional support systems and, and private languages and secrets and good stuff, but there's also a lot of very difficult sort of hazing behavior. And the other ones kind of rose up, but unity, it created a, a you know, a hole inside her that, that exactly as you said, that this Bar this you know really extreme political group filled for her but what she didn't see is that they were using her too Mm -hmm. you know on her end it was all one-sided she she loved hitler she loved what he was doing she became swept up in this cause they embraced her with open arms and and she thought she'd arrived, right? Finally, someone was loving her for her. And yet the sad part of it, of course, is that it was all part of a propaganda campaign. You know, as I mentioned, there was this faction of English society that accepted the Nazis, that welcomed them. And Hitler and his propaganda team wanted to foster that. And wow, if two of the Mitford sisters, the aristocratic, you know, it-girls, Cousins to Churchill, if they liked us, well, well, there's something wrong with us. It was Mm -hmm. their way of kind of smoothing over the bad press in those early days in the lead up to World War II. But, you know, Unity couldn't see that. She didn't want to hear it. Diana, on the other hand, knew it and exploited it for her own purposes. You know, when you look at these two sisters and the way in which they become wrapped up in nazism not just fascism but nazism it's for very different reasons mm-hmm. with very different levels of awareness and intentionality and in my mind varying degrees of awfulness right i mean unity's awful in her own way and so is diana but there's a part of unity you even at the end you can't help but pity because of why she's attracted mm-hmm. to it diana i don't know mm-hmm. there's a, I don't know about you, but I have a very different feeling about Diana. If you ever, what's fascinating too, is, you know, these sisters were famous. So, you know, I do a ton of research. And so I've watched a bazillion video clips and read a million memoirs. I mean, they wrote their own stories over and over, which were, you know, arguably not totally trustworthy, but there's a a video interview of Diana much later in life, still beautiful. She's in her sixties or seventies, stunning. And to, listen to her talk with that extremely upper-class accent and, and describe these events. That's where I got the Diana that's in the pages of this, of this book, the chilling Diana Mm -hmm. that's in the pages of this book. She is a a singular creature and a scary one. Wow. Yeah.
0: Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds at mint mobile. We like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at moonpig.com.
1: Moonpig.com.
2: And then you have Nancy, who's like the like the Nora Ephron of the
1: family, essentially. <laughs> <right>? she, <laughs> I well. I'm gonna have to use that. That is exactly Nancy. She's funny, self-deprecating, biting. She'd be really mean. And yet she, you know, attracted this group of, of social beings and she was celebrated. And yet things didn't always go so well for Nancy. And she was f- trying to find her own way. And she felt very strongly the, the neglect of her parents, probably in a way that her other siblings didn't. Mm-hmm. You know, at the oldest, she was often alone and um, she could watch what was happening beneath her. And that I think really stayed with her, at least my version of Nancy, right? I write fictional versions of real people. I'm not saying she was totally sympathetic either. That's for sure. There were lots of times I wanted to shake her and say, what are you doing? But her biting wit and her eventual moral compass do kick into play there, thankfully, for all of us. Because who knows? Who knows? You know, looking at this story and looking at the legacy of these women, I was looking at, the possible, you know, really traumatic legacy that could have happened, mm-hmm. a legacy that I think did, but really we aren't aware of. Mm-hmm. And at the core of that is the risks that, you know, when you look at a, at a huge historical event like World War II, the way it could have played out and how it could have played out. And there's so many what-ifs that we often aren't aware of that we are very beholden to today, right? Things yes. that didn't happen that that people that we aren't aware of that played a role in that. I can't, it's hard to say that without yeah. giving. It, don't, don't
2: give it away. That's what I'm saying. You Enough bad stuff did happen though. So it's like.
1: Oh,
2: uh, I mean, <laughs> horrible, right? Horrible. That was, obvious. I mean, I'm joking. Uh, you know, I. No. You know, beyond bad, beyond horrific. So it was, it was crazy to see this different side of things. Like the
1: back, honestly, the backstage of
2: That's the whole right. thing.
1: So. And also fascinating the way in which, and I don't know that this is so true today, but the way in which high society and governmental leaders overlapped. It's you yes. The yes. upper echelons of society were also the leaders of society. They're they really what they were one and the same. And so these girls who, you know, had nothing to recommend them other than their titles and their looks and their own wits were able to literally claw to the epicenter of the lead-up to World War II. I mean, that kind of access and influence, it it, it really blows the mind. And yet it really, really happened.
2: So how did you go about writing this whole thing? Like, did you have piles of research? Did you divide by character? Did you, like, how did you attack this project?
1: That's a great question. And if you had seen my desk at that time... (laughs) A hot, hot mess of unorganized piles. You know, I love my original source material and my God, there's no shortage of it with the Mitfords. You know, you always want something in their own hand, letters, journals. There's tons of those. They wrote to each other constantly. Most of their letters are public. But the sisters, unlike anyone else I've ever written about, almost every single one of them wrote their own memoir. Right. Or multiple memoirs or essays or, you know, and and in Diane and in Nancy's case, she also wrote two fiction books Mm -hmm. during this time period, which are little known Wigs on the Green and Pigeon Pie, which are exact mirrors of what was going on in her life. So really, it was about kind of reading all of that, creating a million timelines, because as you said, I'm sometimes I'm literally looking at exactly the same event through all three sets of their eyes, making timelines and then stepping back and writing and having all that material at hand to draw on as I kind of, you know, went to each of their perspectives for those scenes. It was very tricky because I wanted to show the reader the way the world looked through their eyes without repeating the same scene over and over again. So it was tricky. It was rewarding, but it was also, as I said earlier, sometimes really tough because some of the interactions these characters have with leaders of the Nazi party, um, unsavory characters in the British uh, government and society Uh, They were almost unpalatable. And yet I felt like in order to go through this exercise, I needed to do that. I myself wanted to understand how people made their own political decisions, Mm. how they found groups and affiliations. And I kind of had always thought that people started with a political belief. But in fact, what I think after writing this book is that people are attracted to political beliefs because of personal things Mm -hmm. Uh, as one of the themes in the book is that the the political is very personal and I I felt like I needed to go through the personal for each of those characters to understand how they arrived at their political belief systems. some of which were unfathomable to me and it helped me understand society then not that it made me sympathetic to a lot of the choices but it it helped me understand it and society today, of course.
2: Yeah, I feel like there's so many parallels. You know, it's frightening. They're, the movements and the groups and conviction and, you know, it's just very easy to fall into things and not look around and say, wait a minute, like what, what exactly is going on here? Where is this leading? And like, I, I don't know. There's just, I, th- I feel like there's a lot of undercurrents at the moment.
1: And that was my um, intention to draw those parallels. Yep. And the way in which we ignore the unsavory parts because the rest suit us. Mm-hmm. Right? I mean, the the, um, the Midford parents are great examples of that. I mean, so are the sisters as well. But, you know, they started off having one very specific belief system and completely flip-flop because it suited their uh, certain personal Gains, yeah, and and that was interesting to watch as well. You know the way in which the peripheral players got swept up and and changed their views for personal reasons and ignored some of the really awful stuff that was going on that they did know about. I mean, yeah. they knew what was happening to the Jewish people in Germany. They knew, and yet time and time again, that was uh, mischaracterized, that was glossed over, that was swept under the rug, and it's so awful to watch that happen and yet I felt like I needed to do it mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. oh my gosh
2: okay so you finished this book and now what do you have coming up like what are you working on do you have a similarly disorganized desk
1: oh that's something else <laughs> yeah, I'm looking at this at the good at the bad stuff you only see the clean side yeah I have another book coming out in June it's my next co written book with Victoria Christopher Murray, my co writer, my wonderful sister and partner um, from The Personal Librarian. And that book is the story of the friendship between Eleanor Roosevelt. And someone who should be as well-known as Eleanor Roosevelt, but generally isn't, um, Mary McLeod Bethune. She was the 15th child in the family. She was the firstborn free. She was um, self-educated, founded a college in Florida, a current HBCU, Bethune-Cookman. And she rose up to become, during her lifetime, one of the most famous uh, black advocates. Mm-hmm. And she and Eleanor became like BFFF, BFFs in the 1920s before Eleanor was the First Lady or the First Lady of New York even at a time of segregation. Mm-hmm. And when couldn't even find a place to go get a cup of coffee. And then these two women worked behind the scenes to really form the foundation for the civil rights movement. And people are really just don't even know. It was so hard to find source material for this story because I... I really feel like their friendship has hardly been examined at all. And Hmm. it's a really important one that we benefit from today. So that's next out in June. Oh my gosh, that's so soon. I didn't even realize it's like around the corner. Yeah. And I'm just turning in my book for next year. Oh Oh my gosh. And what is that? That it's currently called, we'll see if the title sticks. You know how that goes uh, The Archaeologist and about Lady Evelyn Herbert, who was the real life daughter of the 5th Lord Carnarvon, who, Carnarvon, I can't pronounce it, who owned a Highclere Castle, which was really Downton Abbey, you know, the... Oh, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And um, he was an archaeologist, founded all these um, excavations in the 1920s, and she um, was an archaeologist as well. And together, along with the now famous Howard Carter, they uncovered the Tomb of Tutankhamun. But there's a whole additional story about the real pharaoh that they were looking for, which was a woman. And so we examine a whole other part of historical women, ancient historical women, the quest to find them, why and how they were erased from the past, and the role that she plays that really no one knows in all of that. Wow! Well, gosh, you have so much going on. That's awesome. It's really great. Well, running an empire as well. Oh, so, stop. I, I can stop I can spend stop, a few plates it. I can spin a few plates. But no. yeah, I'm very, very fortunate to have to do what I do. And I, I feel a huge responsibility towards the women I write about. How do you even pick
2: like who's coming up after that? Or do you do do you just have like a list on your bulletin board?
1: I, I, I literally have a list. Yeah. <laughs> there. There's like probably 50-75 women on it. Wow. Um, and any one of them you know, if, the, if you make the list, you've met my rubric, right? You have done something magnificent that we still benefit from today. And you've grappled with an issue that's really modern in tone and in nature. So readers today can relate to it. And then it's kind of the way I kind of select from that is what speaks to me. You know, if I'm if I'm personally dealing with an issue, I might be attracted to one woman's story over another. If something is really timely happening in our society and it really ties in with a particular woman's story, I might choose her. Um, so each one of them, and sometimes I pick one and I don't know why, but as I'm reading it, I figure it out. Right? Mm-hmm. You know, writing is a way of processing our own mm-hmm. sort of struggles and humanity, and sometimes it's by writing that I'm actually processing you know, all that too. So sometimes I don't know till the end, but yeah, there's no shortage of women, just a shortage of time. You know, what you should do in your spare time
2: is do a children's book with all the women and have like a picture of the women and then say like issue that they're dealing with, like how it relates, like just what you were saying,
1: like the issue they're grappling with, you know, how it relates to today. Okay. Next project. I like that. Right. I mean, I do feel like because you know, my books are not certainly readers as young as middle schoolers could could enjoy them. Mm-hmm. There's nothing really scandalous or inappropriate in them, but they're often dealing with issues that might not be exciting for middle schoolers or okay, high maybe, schoolers. Okay, maybe. Yeah. Well, that's right. But the core it, but the core accomplishment and issue is one that they should know about. And you know, I just didn't. Um, I did two events in the past couple of weeks. One was for a high school. Specifically, the biology department, I talked about Rosalind Franklin, who I wrote about in her hidden genius, who discovered DNA and had that discovery taken from her Mm -hmm. by two men, Watson and Crick, who won the Nobel Prize. And at another school, I talked about Carnegie's Maid, which is a book I wrote that's really about Pittsburgh and Andrew Carnegie's Mm -hmm. philanthropy. And, you know, it was for, I was talking to younger readers, really close up and personal. And you're right, those stories do resonate. Those histories too, Or maybe it's not a children's
2: book. I'm going back on myself. Maybe it is more of like, but I still see this as like an illustrated book, but it could be called yep. like, what would you do? And just like pose it as a dilemma for the reader in each one.
1: Oh, I like that. This is spoken like a publisher. <laughs> looking at. <laughs> oh no, but you're right. You know, having them look at the, it, cause that's how I look at the women, right. As a lens through which we're, we're dealing with an issue or a topic or, you know, a recognition, which is so often taken from women. I love that. But it could I also like that. for
2: this book, it could be, you know, what would you do if two of your sisters were mm-hmm. suddenly, you know, siding with the bad guys what would you do right. would you tell it could even be like uh, quizzes would you tell you know like would why? you interview yeah, i don't know i don't know it's a, it's just like an interesting but way
1: you know, to get right yeah you're right like that um those books i loved them when we were growing up you had choose, your own, called, choose your own adventure called but choose your own adventure yeah
0: yeah
1: because as you choose you can see the way historical events fall one way or the other. Yeah. You really get to see the implications of decisions. Yeah. I love that. Right. It could be fun. You just opened up a whole Pandora's box. Yeah. Ah, I love Love that. Okay. Well, you go work on that. I'm going to go back to my life. (laughs) (laughs) Now that you've left me with this huge new idea. Thank you. I didn't Uh expect that today. (laughs) I just, Hey, thank you so much for for reading the Midford Affair, for chatting with me about it, and for doing all you do. No, it was good. I really learned a lot, and I found it.
2: I found it so interesting. I love learning, and it was great. So, thank you
1: so much. Okay. All right. All right. You all right. enjoy your holidays and thank enjoy that time for yourself. Okay. Yeah, we'll see Bye. if that happens. Okay. Bye. Yeah,
2: good luck. <laughs> Thanks for listening to this episode of Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books.